0: Coming up on this episode of The Courage to Change.
1: But the good news, and there is really good news. The good news is that after uh, six weeks, the data shows that the brain has recovered 2% of its volume. Six weeks of rehab, no drinking, brain uh, recovery of 2% volume. Incredible growth of the brain. I had no idea that that would be the case. And what grows back the most is the white matter. The, the way matter is the connecting fibers, the, the long mm-hmm. the cables that connect the frontal lobe, the part where we think we have willpower, to the uh, sort of lower parts of brain where we crave. With that, with that connection being weak, you can have willpower, but it's really hard for that willpower to overcome a strong craving for alcohol. But with recovery, you eat well. And if you eat really well, you have better recovery.
0: Hello, beautiful people. Welcome to the Courage to Change, a recovery podcast. My name is Ashley Low and Game, and I am your host. Today, we have Dr. John Umhau. Dr. John Umhau is a board-certified addiction medicine specialist who directs alcoholrecoverymedicine.com and provides telemedicine treatment for people with alcohol use disorder. For over 20 years, Dr. Umhau was a senior clinical investigator at the National Institute on Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism of the National Institutes of Health, NIH. As a commander in the United States Public Health Service, he served as a clinical director for an Indian Health Service hospital in White River, Arizona, and as a medical officer in the Division of Psychiatric Products of the FDA. His scientific interest in nutritional neuroscience is informed by decades of clinical experience. He is the past president of the Academy of Medicine of Washington, District of Columbia. Dr. Um, Umhau is revolutionizing alcohol use treatment, utilizing medications, diet, and the Sinclair method to change lives. He has also led a team of scientists to develop a method of measuring the brain uptake of the essential omega-3 fatty acid, DHA. His comprehensive treatment methods consider the whole person and are highly effective. As you can see, Dr. Umhau has an incredible resume. He and I spoke about a lot of different medications that have come out on the market and ways that people struggling with alcohol use disorder can support their brain in recovery. There's a lot to digest here. I encourage you to listen more than once, take notes. So without further ado, I give you Dr. John Umhau. Dr. John Umhau. Thank you so much for being here.
1: Thanks for your show. Really helps you, helping a lot of people. Really nice to, to be a part of this. Thank you. Thank
0: you. Yeah, it's really a fun project for me that and the fact that it helps people is such an amazing cherry on the top. So I'm, I'm grateful. You've been doing this for over 30 years. You've been in the substance use disorder, addiction, mental health field. Can you give me a little bit of background on your career and how you got started on this lovely topic.
1: Well, sure. When I was uh, a young physician, I was very idealistic and I Mm. wanted to help people stay well. Mm. And so I did a clinical preventive medicine residency at Johns Hopkins. And that's where I got exposed to the whole alcoholism treatment field. And as part of the training at Hopkins, you had to go to a, a different Alcoholics Anonymous meeting every week. And I got really interested in the conversations that the guys and the gals would have. I was really enamored by the character development that I could see was so important Mm -hmm. for recovery. And and these were really people that had suffered and struggled and and overcome and were helping other people. And I thought, as a physician, what better way to help folks is to Mm -hmm. participate in this kind of uh, efforts.
0: I love that. And I love that it was preventative medicine and they had you yeah. going and having this real world experience. I also love that it was Hopkins. I've just finished a degree at Hopkins. So very exciting. Oh, Congratulations. Thank you. you so you go to these meetings and you see... To, talk to me about this character development piece i i I know from personal experience but what did you see from from a per, the perspective of someone who maybe had no idea what you were walking into
1: and they talked about how they had become better people how they became less self-centered and they became more interested in in other people and helping others a lot of them had very very difficult times they'd hit bottom and they really were so grateful for life and for what they had and they wanted to share it with other people and that was really attractive to me
0: was that surprising to you is that what you expected
1: i don't know what i expected at the time but what i was fascinating is that there were people from all walks of life yep every every kind of person that you could meet anywhere here they were in the meeting and they had this in common and it was it was a a kind of a common bond that, that they had suffered and they were helping each other stay stay well
0: did you know anyone with substance use disorder or anything along those lines growing up or or in your life previous to this exposure?
1: No, I didn't. But I, I had the experience of my brother, who's one of the family members of his extended family, had been in recovery for 40 years at the time. And he'd gone from the worst bottom you can imagine. But when I do them is picture appeared on the front page of the Wall Street Journal for something that they've done right, remarkable right, right. in this business world. So it's like, wow, these people really do recover.
0: Well, that's actually kind of cool that you had yeah. you, your exposure to it was was started with the recovery piece. I, I, I like that better, actually. Yeah. So you've taken a couple different paths that I want to touch on as it relates to the treatment of uh, substance use disorder, alcoholism, whatever you want to call it. People call it different things. We were talking about that earlier. There are different terms for it. Um, and we've changed those terms over the years. What? How did you start participating in recovery? You worked at the NIH. What was, what was the path that led you sure. to starting to use some of the medications that you started to use to help treat it?
1: So I worked with a homeless uh, downtown in downtown Baltimore, and I always tell the story of, uh, of a guy that became a friend. and He had alcoholism really severely. Uh, he also would lose his temper and and uh, had a real violent problem. and mm. And he would um, he would lose his temper and get kicked out of programs. And yet, when he was sober, he was he was a really nice, intelligent. Guy, my exact same age, different life circumstances when he was a child, but complete family history of alcoholism. I really wanted to help this guy, and I would see him on the street downtown in mm. Baltimore. And uh, one time he was sloppy drunk, and they wouldn't let him in the clinic, of course. And so they said, "Hey, Dr. John, there's somebody on the street that wants to talk to you." And I knew who it was, so I went out there, and Harry he was. He said, "Doc, you got to help me." And he got down on his hands and knees in the middle of Light Street downtown Baltimore, and begged me, "Doc, put me somewhere where I can't drink anymore." This was like 25 years ago. I had nothing to offer him. I mean, there was an abuse. He tried an abuse. He drunk through it. He'd been to every program. He'd gone through detox over and over again. There's really nothing. He would been in jail over and over again. When he was in jail, I went, went to visit him in prison one time, and he uh, he was starting Bible studies in jail, and 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 he quit smoking. and was just really proud of himself. And you know, it's just a transformation that if he'd been off alcohol for long enough, his his brain would start to work. So I got interested in those issues and right um, one of the uh, one of uh, one of the guys that I, I had known from my residency when I was a student at, at Duke uh, and he said hey, why don't you come and help us work at NIH in our alcoholism research unit We're studying exactly this kind of person and so it was great I was there for 20 years and it was uh, it was wonderful I got to do a lot of research to help other physicians uh, study um, study the nutritional, aspects of the brain, looking at medication development. That was a great, great learning experience for 20 years. I got to write a lot of papers and learn and just fabulous. And then I went on to, uh, to work at the FDA and I ran a hospital for the Indian Health Service. I was a U.S. Public Health Service officer at the time and recently retired and wanted to give back. With what I had learned, and so I started a private practice, um, alcohol recovery medicine, and it has a uh, a reach through telemedicine, which has really been fun. I've been doing that for like last, last four years.
0: So, you know, my background, as I'm sure that Peter's told you about, I, I got sober. I went to lots of treatment centers and eventually got sober in AA 12-step. And have been a member of Alcoholics Anonymous for over 16 years, but have been clean and sober over 16 years. And it's been quite a journey. And with that, since, you know, at the time, that was that was really what was presented to you at any given treatment center. And now there are all these other options and one of the options is the Sinclair method using naltrexone I mean even even when when I detoxed from heroin we did not have suboxone we had buprenex but it wasn't really used that much and it was abusable and so I'm wondering as these, as we've ushered these medicines into this space, for those of us who have, have a, you know, have the abstinence background, how do we think about, can you help people? It's taken me some time to understand and and read the data and and really get my mind around how we can use medicines in a way that isn't, that isn't using again, dependence again. Can you help, Explain and usher in that idea for people who may have um, biases against it.
1: The dad actually showed that when people are given naltrexone, um, and they were separated into two groups, one group was was told "got to be abstinent, can't drink, don't drink." That was the main message, and the other group was said, "you know, try not to drink so but keep taking the medicine." Okay. The first group did not recover. The second group did.
0: And when you what was our what was the definition of recover in this particular instance?
1: Uh, well, uh, drinking at a safe level in six months or a year, and we know that uh, it blocks the pleasure that people get from drinking, and that was the way that it was sort of designed. Well, the scientists thought if we could block the the pleasure from drinking or opiates or whatever, then we could extinguish the pleasure, extinguish the reinforcement of the behavior, and eventually they would lose people would lose interest in, in drinking. And that's what Sinclair found, uh, that if people would always take naltrexone and had it in their bloodstream before they drank, then they would eventually lose the extreme craving that, that they got. So so what in practicality, what we're dealing with is, is people. And people do what they want to do, because we've mm-hmm. got our own desires. And so many people say, you know, I I don't want to do rehab because I just would die if I didn't drink. I would I would literally die without alcohol. And so the Sinclair method allows them to say, okay, I know where you're at. You don't want to stop drinking. That's okay. The method will help you drink less. You'll be safer and you won't die from from drinking too much. And they say, Okay, I can do that. I can I can take a pill to help me drink one bottle of wine a night instead of two. And then they drink two one bottle of wine and I say, you know, I can drink less than that. And they keep going. And they get to the point after a few months a year, where they say, you know, alcohol is not that important to me. It's kind of dangerous, costs money. I'm not going to drink anymore. And they stop. No intention of stopping in the beginning. We're doing patient-centered care. This is what people are after. Are they getting, you know, one of the
0: the beautiful things, and you actually mentioned this, This the character development, I think is what you called it, the character development aspect of getting, of of the abstinence 12-step programs, which, again, the character development is not confined to 12-step programs, but it's a huge part of that. You're you're replacing alcohol with character development. I mean, that's really what we're what the 12 steps preach about, if you will. With the Sinclair method, one of the things that where the data doesn't speak to me, the data the under I get the data in terms of the chemical extinction and 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 getting rid of these cravings. The component that makes me curious is are people missing out on the character development that is so profound for people who've been using this substance as a medicine, as as some sort of coping mechanism for some sort of internal disalignment.
1: I really admire that character development. And we don't have the data on long-term success for the Sinclair method. We have a year where after a year Sinclair method works pretty good. But what about the long term? After five years, do people yeah. feel like hell? Oh, I can drink now, and we yeah. don't know. There is no data. It may work great, but I've seen people they relapse on the Sinclair method because they didn't care. You know, something something happened, and they just said, you know, I must be well now. I can I can drink, or right, or, right. or they just some life happens and they start drinking again. It's an issue. So my my idea from the get go with folks is to make sure that they do have the the component of the character development too as best i can through the spiritual growth that they can experience through connection with their creator if they believe in one or with the community or giving back or working the steps as best they can because the steps are not designed to only be abstinent the idea is that you don't want to have alcohol destroy your life and you do these these principles and you and you um, do self-examination and you help other people and you recover you create community Right, you create community exactly, and all that stuff fits well with however whatever medicine you use. And now, is not the only medicine at all, but the uh, but the twelve steps really do, in my mind, help the long term recovery. Um, now, here's the thing that I've also noticed in in my telemedicine work is I find people that are early in their addiction, ah. and and what happens is that someone who is trying to lose weight switches from drinking wine or beer to vodka because they want to be on a a keto diet okay they're not drinking they're not drinking heavy alcohol because they have a problem or something they're trying to forget or whatever they're just drinking to lose weight or sometimes people will go their whole lifetime and then their their spouse leaves them and they they're alone in the basement, and they drink, and they don't have the same psychological problems as, as say, my friend in Baltimore, who grew up without an intact family and was had a horrific childhood. Is a completely different kind of problems that they're thinking about. In in these folks who just recognize, oh my gosh, I can't stop drinking, and that's the issue. The Sinkler method may be all that they need. I mean, they, it really made, they had a good life before; they knew how to have fun, but they just kind of got addicted to the alcohol inadvertently. I don't know how often that is. I don't know. There's no data on any of this stuff. It's just some people don't have any big issues. A lot of people do. And they feel, you know, they drink a lot and they have uh, responsibilities that they fail. They feel guilty about that. And so they have to deal with that. So that's part of the the recovery that, that has to happen. Sometimes people will relapse. And that's a really sad thing because they go through the Sinclair Method. They've lost their craving for alcohol. Easily go six weeks, six months without drinking, and then something happens and they get addicted again. And it's oftentimes, I think, because their character hasn't developed to the point where they say, you know, it's too dangerous for me to drink, which is what I tell people. It's really dangerous to keep drinking. Abstinence is by far the safest choice if you can stay abstinent. But if you can't stay abstinent, you know, make sure you've got a pill with you. Make sure you take the naltrexone beforehand.
0: It's interesting. One of the things that's going through my mind as we're talking about this is So for me, the character development has been a huge piece of becoming a new whole person again. But we call it K-Fuck Radio, right? Like K-Fuck Radio is still on. It's still loud. And I have to turn it down all the time, right? And it turns Mm. up. And what happens when it turns up is that it's like the peanuts, like that. Like I can hear the things that are going on the conversations whatever but this thing telling me to drink or use or whatever it is like the the loud is is so loud that eventually it just becomes not i'm not able to manage it right and so recovery for me has been about turning that knob down and keeping it really low so that frankly so that i can notice when it starts to come up and then i can go so i i can even tell the difference right that is i turn that down with character development but my character is not different when it turns up, right? So what I mean to say is my my actual character, as that gets louder and as I want to drink more or drug more, my character is still the same, but the act of participating in my character, the character development, the act of participating in giving back helps to turn that down, helps to make that, that switch. And one of the things that you're talking about is these people who... You know, you, you talk about this guy in Baltimore, and then you you talk about this person whose wife leaves him, right? And let's take these two examples. One has, I'm sure, extreme compounding trauma from life on the streets, which started out with trauma anyway. Uh, a brain that's been so traumatized and 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 so wired, right? That, so wired for trauma that trying to undo that is just You know, you don't even know where to start. And this other person who probably has some trauma, but this is the big thing they start drinking. The thing is that I wonder when you walked into those meetings and you saw that alcoholism does not discriminate, it doesn't pick or choose, right? It's it's we're all susceptible to it regardless of our backgrounds. I know people who have a beautiful had a beautiful childhood and that that's you know that's part of there's a genetic component when we're talking about getting to people early what i think is that we're not give we're almost not giving them enough credit by saying that well they're not as bad as this other person because left untreated they have the opportunity right they have the capacity to turn into your friend who's homeless on the street right and they have the capacity to engage in things that create trauma at the level of their, your friend who's on the street. So for me, when we only treat it with Sinclair method, right? When we only do that, we're actually, doesn't it, and, and again, I'm open to this being totally wrong, but my this is my, my hypothesis, right? We're actually, the reason why i would be concerned about the long term data the short term data is great and i think it's important if we can get those people to abstinence and then and and work with them on recovery then that's fantastic my question my worry is that if we're not treating the internal disease Right, the internal, the internal gay fuck radio that's going on, that's developing. That they were using a substance to calm, to quiet, as medicine. If we only remove that medicine and we teach them how to remove that, aren't we going to get another, another? Aren't they going to find or look for another way to internally heal, and which is going to cause a new litany of
1: problems? There's an issue called um, the alcohol deprivation effect. And that's one of the things that Dr. Sinclair first discovered, which is that if he had laboratory animals, he was a laboratory doc, he studied animals. And he found that if the animals that were trained to drink alcohol were deprived of alcohol, they would lever press to get it. And the longer that they went without alcohol, the more they would lever press. Oh, interesting! And 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 they would did
0: it stop at a certain point?
1: Like, was there a no? They would they would keep going. They would want it more and more and more as time went on. And he called that the alcohol deprivation effect. And he explained it in a very logical way because the alcohol creates endorphins in the brain, mm-hmm. and this, these endorphins are also what we get from pleasurable activities. Right. But the endorphins would the endorphin receptors would be flooded by the stimulation from the drinking. And then the drinking stops and the endorphin receptors say, wait a minute, where's our stimulation? Where's our endorphin? And so they would multiply, they would become more sensitized. And so There'd be more and more of them. So they would want more and more of that stimulation. So even if the rat just thought about alcohol a little bit, he would get a little bit of the endorphin stimulation. So then it would fire everything. We want some more, we want some more. And because you had increased sensitivity to the endorphins, you have increased sensitivity to the pleasure of drinking. And so that's why people would drink so much more on their first binge after mm. stopping drinking for a while. And that's where, where the naltrexone is so successful uh, in the synchronous, because you target it. Okay, you're gonna drink again, you're building up your, your receptors, let's block them. Right. So you, you take the drink and there's no reinforcement. So that's how that works. For someone who's not doing naltrexone, who's instead living a happy life, the little sadness that they get from their wife leaving is then replaced by, Oh, I'll go play basketball with my friends. Or, I will go and, and uh, enjoy a church service or I'll. Okay. So there's certain things that cause endorphins. And so it's not everything. It's human endeavors, efforts with other people. So you can sing, but you get endorphins when you sing in a choir. Mm, and you can laugh at a movie by yourself in the basement, but you get endorphins when you're in a comedy club and there's everybody laughing around you. And you can exercise in the basement, you know, doing your rowing machine. But if you're with if you're in a spin class with other people, then you get endorphins. It's a human thing, and this has been shown over and over again. Religious ceremonies will do this, right? Not a prayer, not a prayer meeting, but the standing up and the and the, and the participation right. and so forth is what gives the endorphins, and that's how. 30 years ago when I was in an a meeting and these guys talked about being in recovery, you know, for 30 years, they would have rewired their brains so that when they think about drinking, they think about the meetings and the nice guys and the meetings and the holding mm-hmm. hands and the, and the and kind of the hokey things that people talk about in the A meetings, but it's, it makes people happy. If someone's sad, they need relief. And so the brain says, how do I get relief? How do I get endorphins to calm that sadness? And the, and the person thinks either I'll just have a drink of vodka or I'll go to a meeting and be with my friends and they'll encourage me to to have a good day and that kind of thing. So I think that it's a very biological effect. And uh, if you ask me some questions about the biology and nutrition, we can, we can move on to that whenever you want to, because that's really important. Yeah,
0: that's where, where I was headed next. I know that there's two components. There's a gut component. And then there's also, so it, with endorphins, there's BDNF, which I know is... Uh, I don't know. I, I, I could tell you what it was, but I don't know enough about how it differs or is the same with endorphins. But I know community create community and exercise create BDNF, which are happy chemicals. So there's a there's a piece there, right?
1: I think it's the most fascinating story that we've learned in the last uh, few uh, decades about the brain is that we have a, uh, a component of the brain that that promotes growth and restoration and uh, new nerve pathways. And we have another part of the brain that says, we got to fight off this bad stuff. And those are the inflammatory signals that we get from inflammatory cytokines. And that's what the diet acts on. So what we want to do is we want to move our brain from the inflammatory state to a BDNF brain growth state where Mm -hmm. we're including new neurons. So here's the fascinating thing. We have MRIs of people that have been suffering from alcoholism for mm-hmm. a couple of decades. Um, maybe they're in their 40s. And we have we can compare them to healthy people in their forties. And what's striking is that the brain is shrunk, it's atrophied. The the white matter, the connecting fibers are, are smaller, the gray matter is smaller. Just like there's the, the there's this all this empty space. The brain's almost like rattling around inside the skull compared to somebody who has not have alcoholism. And when you look at the stark comparison on this MRI scan, you can understand why someone might be in denial. No, maybe they don't have good insight. Of course, they don't have good insight. Of course, they can't pay attention to the counselor. Of course, they're depressed. I mean, they can't think. Of course, the, the, the uh, lower brainstem craving is going to be overcome. They got some willpower, but it's not able to overcome the, the craving because their brain doesn't work right. well. It's like they're brain damaged. They really are. But the good news, and there is really good news, the good news is that after uh, six weeks, the data shows that the brain has recovered 2% of its volume. Six weeks of rehab, no drinking, b- brain uh, recovery of 2% volume. Incredible growth of the brain. I had no idea that that would be the case. And what grows back the most is the white matter. The, the white matter the connecting fibers, the, the, long, mm-hmm. the cables that connect the frontal lobe, the part where we think we have willpower to the sort of lower parts of brain where we crave. With that with that connection being weak, you can have willpower, but it's really hard for that willpower to overcome a strong craving for alcohol. But with recovery, you eat well. And if you eat really well, you have better recovery. And that's one of the things that I, I talk to my patients about is what does that mean?
0: Yeah, so I know we, you've talked, so eating well, and then there's specifically gut health that that is related to the inflammation, that is related to um, making alcoholism worse. Can you talk a bit about that and what you've seen?
1: Sure. Yeah, sure. So there's a sort of the, one of the new theories that I worked on at NIH was the uh, inflammatory hypothesis of alcoholism. Mm-hmm. A lot of us in the research field are really fascinated by the fact that it looks like a lot of these mental illnesses are associated with inflammation in the brain. Uh, and we we detect that by collecting cerebral spinal fluid, wow. uh, the, okay. the, brain, the brain fluid, and you can do this safely, and you can measure the uh, the levels of these inflammatory chemicals in the brain called cytokines.
0: Could we call that? So I, I saw this a bunch of years ago at an addiction conference, and what I what I heard, and I'm someone who had who grew up with a ton of allergies, and so what what I heard was that. It's, it's akin to almost an allergy, right? An inflammatory response that, that alcohol creates in the brain. Is that when we talk about inflammation in the brain, can people almost picture it as an allergy?
1: Well, allergy is a, an abnormality in our immune system, and that's what okay. we're, we're talking about. It, it, it a excessive amount of the inflammatory mediators. These cytokines are re- responsible for protecting the body against pneumonia or or mm. any disease. And and the, the uh, you can think of the the red swollen area of your foot when you get a cut. Okay, um, that's an inflammation response. Well, there's a there's a cycle. So. A little bit of alcohol reduces inflammation. That may be why, oh, perhaps, perhaps people live longer when they drink just a little bit. Why would that be? It's a it's a, the property of a lot of uh, chemicals, and drugs, and so forth. In a, a dose makes the poison. <laughs> dose makes the difference, right? So the effect of a lot of things is different at different doses. Right. Basically. So at a small dose, maybe a glass of alcohol or less, probably less uh, a day reduces inflammation interesting okay and so so but people keep drinking or they get addicted and that upsets a number of things it increases the uh, the chance that people will be malnourished they'll only- eat Drink so much alcohol. Right. They don't get enough zinc. Uh, they won't get a good, a good B vitamins. They won't have enough of the other minerals or, or omega 3 fatty acids. And they also upset the microbiome. So you get more, a less diverse microbiome. And less, uh, diversity is good in ecosystems. Diversity mm-hmm. is good. You don't have too much of one thing. But when you have alcohol, 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 you get fewer and fewer bacteria and you get more of this gram negative overgrowth of bacteria, which is an abnormal situation. And and that allows for excessive gram-negative debris, which we call endotoxin, uh, to get into the bloodstream. Occurs a little bit in everybody, but in alcoholism, where you have the de- deficits of omega-3 fatty acids, and when you have deficits of B vitamins or zinc, you have excess uh, this going into the circulation. It goes right to the liver through the through the portal system, which is the blood supply to the liver from the gut, and then the liver is fighting off this inflammation with a uh, a response, an inflammatory response. There's excess inflammation. And eventually, the liver becomes inflamed, you get fatty liver, you get uh, uh, cirrhosis eventually, and people have liver failure. But in, in the short term, we do get inflammation from the liver and that goes in the circulation together with excess alcohol that gets into the brain the brain detects that inflammatory signal it also can detect the inflammatory signal from nerves in the in the gut and um, the brain says oh my gosh we have an inflammation state going on here and this can be exacerbated by allergies by poisons by maybe paint fumes, maybe uh, uh, maybe toxins in our environment, and certainly other cytokines that are inflammation uh, markers. And so what happens is the brain gets in this excited state and it says, we got to do something. And so the excess cytokines actually um, create uh, an environment where nerve cells die. And the excess debris from the nerve cells is thought perhaps to increase even more cytokines. So you have this uh, mm. sort of a feed-forward process. Yeah. And that's one way some people think that the brain may shrink the brain cells are killed by this excess inflammation and of course then that makes it even harder for the willpower to affect the craving for alcohol that's developed and people learn if you drink you feel better and so the process continues
0: right the vicious cycle right so the one thing, I, I heard a talk you did where you talked about the blood-brain barrier and you talked about, so the blood-brain barrier is meant to protect the brain from from a lot of these things. And that the more, that, that it basically at some point, alcohol can get through it and it becomes more permeable right. depending on what people eat. Is that Accurate? Did I get right.
1: that right? Right. So that's right. So the so the um, so you have a the gut barrier also becomes more permeable. Sometimes they call it leaky. But the brain, blood brain barrier oftentimes is is more open to the inflammatory signals when people drink heavy. It, it also gets the inflammatory signals through the nerves and so forth. So that's that's exactly right.
0: Stay tuned to hear more in just a moment. Hello, beautiful people. If you've been listening to the show for any amount of time you've realized a critical feature in every story is finding a community of supportive people. That community takes many shapes and there is no one size fits all approach. That's where lionrock.life comes in. We host 70 plus meetings a week on a topic that likely matters to you. Those community meetings include things like grief, anger, parenting and recovery, meditation, nutrition, navigating relationships in recovery, and so much more. I think you'll really love it. And I want to give you a chance to try it for free for one month. Go to lionrock.life or download the lionrock.life app, sign up and use promo code courage at checkout for one month free. All the support group meetings you want for one month free. Check it out. Worst case scenario is you meet some great supportive people and you go on your merry way. Okay, back to the show and so you know as a as a parent right as a as an al- I'm married to another alcoholic in recovery and we have this genetic thing and, and we we have twin boys and we look at this and what I think about our children are there was a study that came out showing that Tylenol reduces glutathione which reduce which is damaging to the blood brain barrier which is something that Small children are given a lot well before the blood-brain barrier is even closed. There was a study showed that we have 10% of the nutrients in an apple that we have today that we do from 50 years ago. I'm wondering if these types of things are ways that we're contributing to the increase in, we'll call it alcoholism, addiction, compulsive behaviors, and, and mental illness that we're seeing in the world today. Do you do you have any thoughts
1: on that? Unfortunately, we don't have enough data to say a lot about specifics. Okay, but we do know there's a tremendous number of chemicals in our food supply that um, are thought to be safe because they don't have any effects on human cells, but they may affect the cells of the microbiome in our in our gut, and that is a completely unexplored issue in terms of food safety. How are these The chemicals called surfactants that make uh, mm-hmm. make our puddings smooth when they sit on the shelf for six months? And how does that affect our, our the gut microbiome and interaction between the gut and the gut and uh, the gut wall and the microbiome? We just don't know. We don't think it's really really healthy. You, you talk about your your children and I, and I would put a plug for um, eating eating seafoods. Fish has been associated with uh, a lot of really good mental it really is. The omega-3 fatty acids from fish are something that I studied uh, when I was at NIH. We did the uh, first PET scan of the omega-3 fatty acid DHA to measure how much goes into the brain. And we also discovered that when people are in alcohol recovery after three weeks, the brain is sucking up a lot more of this DHA, uh, this omega-3, than normal. So we know that someone in recovery... We have a deficit. They have a deficit, or at least they, they are sucking up more of the DHA and... It's really a profound effect that I've seen clinically yeah. when people take omega threes. Uh, it was thought when I first did my research, uh, you know, more than twenty years ago, we were thinking that the omega threes just uh, I act because they replace the uh, omega six fats in the right. cellular membranes everywhere, and that's.
0: And omega six are bad, right?
1: It's not that they're bad, bad, but they're bad in excess. And okay. the problem is, <laughs> problem is, the problem is, is that omega sixes <laughs> are so are so abundant in in uh, modern industrial food supply okay. that they they kind of overwhelm the the body with the omega six. So we have like thirty times more omega six. Oh wow! I mean, like soybean oil Something. is soybean oil is this huge commodity. We we feed uh, soybeans to to cattle, we feed them to chickens, hogs. It's in anything in the in a Basically, any kind of salad dressing you want to buy on the market, you know, if they say if they say it has a, a olive oil blend, it means there's like a little bit of olive oil and the rest soybean oil. And soybean oil has so much omega six in it that um, it's thought that that promotes promotes inflammation. There are a lot of people that that think that you can get the same effect by lowering omega six as you can by increasing omega three in your mm, diet, because it's such a profound effect. it seems to be related to pain. Arthritis pain goes away with uh, excess. When you take more omega three, so we were studying omega three, and and we found that um, the half life of omega three in your brain is two and a half years. So what that means is that wow. you're, if you if you change That's your dose huge. from eating you know fish once a month to eating fish every day, like I do, it takes ten years for the effects to to kind of even out.
0: What about any of the, you know, the metals, the like the types of seafood, the you know, the the stuff that's in a lot of our food, farm raise, that kind of thing?
1: What I what I do know is they they they've done studies that that look at the mercury and mm-hmm. yeah, mercury's a bad actor. It can cause brain damage. But the problem is that when you have fish that have mercury in them, you don't know whether the, the mercury in the fish is worse than it is to be def- deficient in omega-3s. And it looks like the selenium in the fish, along with the omega-3s, really does protect the brain. And in fact, there, there was one study looking at the uh, men looking at, I think it was heart disease in England, and the people with the uh, omega-3 fish consumption had higher mercury, but they also lived longer and had less heart disease. So the mercury was... It didn't go the way that they they thought it would. Right, right. And and, um, in terms of um, farm fish, you know, there may be other... The nanoparticles that get into the into the farm fish, it's it's really hard to know. Um, I think probably the safest food to, to have is like sardines because they're small fish and they're low on the food chain. And and uh, whereas the big fish like uh, the swordfish maybe have too much mercury in them, so you want to avoid that. But in my personal uh, opinion, prohibition against eating fish when you're pregnant is completely nuts. And that's done more I think that's done more harm to uh, the world than anything any public health invention ever because the child childhood defec- deficiency of omega-3 yeah. fatty acids affects development we we know from the, the Alspac study, but uh, uh, Dr. Joe Hibben, who I work with really was fascinated by this effect and he did a study in England looking at uh, this uh, population study called the Alspac study and they looked at the Alspac started um oh about 20 Years ago, I guess, and and they looked at about fifteen thousand births in England. The study <laughs> in the county of Avon, England, and they followed these children up to seven years to see how they turn out. And they studied everything they could think of at birth, uh, blood levels, and everything. And they found that even after controlling for like twenty three variables, the more fish the women ate while they were pregnant, the the uh, better. Social ability the children had they had less lying cheating stealing wow. all, very much more pro social than the uh, uh, than the children whose mothers didn't didn't eat any fish it was it was so profound that the the girls who are traditionally better behaved than the boys had uh, without any fish had behavior that is as bad as the boys and it 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 also tracks oh. for intelligence it's extremely important for brain development As you can imagine these are the fats that are concentrated in the brain in the white matter mm. and so it allows the different parts of the brain to communicate and my way of thinking is that's is that's the way that humans are designed to be we're designed to have different parts of our brain our, our visual cortex And our notions and our and our final critics be well integrated. And that well integration allows us then to, to respond to our society because so much of human interaction is, is our brains are designed for human interaction. right And when right. they work really well, we have really highly civilized societies. I'm thinking about ancient Greece uh, or Elizabeth in England where we had lots of fish consumption, high omega-3s. Vitamin right. D is also important. Vitamin D is important for brain health. It's a neurosteroid. So if your brain right. doesn't have enough vitamin D, it's more likely to become depressed. Vitamin D is is like a hormone sort of
0: um and we're chronically vitamin d deficient as a as a country
1: right so i did a study looking at the service members and service members that had perished by suicide compared to um service members that yeah. matched in age and rank and so forth that uh, they were healthy and, and survived and, and it turned out that about five percent of the the variance in the in the suicide risk was related to low vitamin d I, um, unfortunately, not a whole lot of things were done about that. It seems like it'd be very simple to to help make sure our our soldiers were not deficient in vitamin D.
0: So, so is there a difference between taking vitamin D and the synthesis from the sun? Do you need both? Can you live with one or the other?
1: Well, that's a great question. So, people do not get sufficient vitamin D in their food. It just it's just not, you can you can prevent rickets by perhaps drinking vitamin D milk. Not everybody can drink milk, so they don't get it. But the issue is that, that all of the, the level of vitamin D that you get from drinking milk isn't sufficient to protect you from perhaps some of the other disorders that, that vitamin D could help with, like cancer or, or even preventing infection disease. Or uh, in, in the case that I was looking at, preventing a, you know, suicide, maybe you need a higher dose than what you could get in food. Yeah. And this, in terms of the sun, sunlight is, a, is an amazing benefit to the human body. We get uh, increased uh, nitric oxide, which relaxes the bloodstream. We get increased um, melatonin. Uh, We get inflammatory effects from the ultraviolet light through cytokine effects. And we also get effects from the infrared. The infrared can uh, reduce inflammation um, by affecting the uh, mitochondria as as deep as like five inches inside our body or something like like that. It's it's an amazing benefit for sunlight. Of course, people that uh, are exposed to sunlight get less SADs too the seasonal affective disorder. And some people think that that's also part of the benefit of vitamin D is you don't get as much seasonal change in depression uh, uh, yeah. disorder.
0: What are some of the other medications? You're saying that there's other medications that are being used that are helping. What are what are you seeing out there?
1: So there's been a, a number of medications that have come out since I started using uh naltrexone so naltrexone came out in the early 1990s and we have also campersate the campersate works great um, for people that are want to be absent they do not want to drink again and they've come out of a a detox program or rehab program and they do it and they don't crave alcohol it reduces the unease that people feel and i remember a guy that i saw last um well i guess i have an appointment with him coming up uh, in a couple of days but uh he sees me every every six weeks or so now his story is that he couldn't stop drinking vodka, couldn't stop drinking. And his wife um liked to drink and she kind of liked him she didn't mind him being drunk and, and he knew it was destroying himself. And the and the he anyway, so they split up. And so because of the old divorce thing and they had children, and everything like that. So he came to see me after in this process, you know. And and uh after about four four months or so, um the campersade had really helped him, so he didn't relapse again. He just stopped drinking. And um, he just was so thrilled that he wasn't drinking. But he confided to me, he said, Doc, if I had known that there were medicines that exist, which could stop my craving for alcohol, if I'd known that 14 months ago, I wouldn't be divorced today and I wouldn't be sharing custody with my kids. And that kind of story really motivates me to, to do podcasts like this because people need to know that the medicines can really help. So that's that's about medicine I've studied. It's FDA approved and it's it's the
0: Do you get off of it or do you take it three times a day for
1: Well, so he so he you take it three times a day. And the studies go up to six months or a year or something like that. But you could take it longer than that. It's a safe medicine. So he's got something to take if he would get in a situation where he feels like he might want to drink again. He just takes it. And it, it does help the the unease or the, the post-acute withdrawal that people describe uh, when their bodies want that endorphins. Um, we talked about the alcohol deprivation effect. And maybe maybe this affects the ill ease or the uncomfortableness that people feel before they want to relapse again. It's a, it's a good drug. Although you have to take it three times a day.
0: Right. I mean, if you're struggling to not to drink, and that's a, it seems small, right. okay, right?
1: Right. So the other medicines, uh, naltrexone, can also be given by injection, and that right. works great for people that are not interested in uh, or realize that they can't remember to take the medicine, or they may be drinking throughout the, throughout the day. The naltrexone can be given in this targeted fashion of the Sinclair method for people that say come home at night and drink on a regular basis. But suppose people are drinking throughout the day; it's not. Quite so easy to figure out how that works, and so people could take naltrexone on a daily basis, you know, once a day, or and that's the way that I was told to use it when I first was got naltrexone. So when when I was working at N.A.H., that naltrexone had just come on the market. I was so excited because now I finally had a, a drug that would stop craving. I was going to use it, and everybody said, "Well, it doesn't work that great." You know, it's we've, we've read the studies; it doesn't work that 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 great. But you can try it if you want to. So they let me let me give it to the patients as, uh, when they left our program, and and they would take it. And there was zero side effects that anybody would have because there was no endorphins in the body. They would be blocking. People would take it and it would stop craving a lot of times. But a lot of times people didn't take it very long. Sometimes they felt kind of blah because it blocks endorphins. So you don't enjoy life as much. And so after a few months or six months when they kind of quit it. but you know people would say you know really help me doc i didn't crave alcohol and of course what's going on when the people crave is that they imagine drinking and when they imagine drinking their brains becomes active and ma- makes endorphins just like it is when they drink think of pavlov's dog remember pavlov's dog would salivate and have all the the activity in his in his, in his brain of eating even before i got the uh, the food because of the bell would go off and the same thing would be when we uh if you're at uh, have, Alcoholism, and you see a, a, a advertisement for alcohol, and your, all the same neurochemicals go off, and you start thinking about alcohol. And that it, it works with the same principle that people experience more pleasure with the first drink. And right. They drink right, more, right, and more, right. more and more and more, and they have sort of a manic feeling. You got to have more and more and more. And that's blocked. By the naltrexone, particularly uh, if you give the naltrexone in, in such a way that the blood levels are maximal when they have their first drink. And that's, what, that's the way the Sinclair method works. Is I've published a, a letter about this because people didn't realize that, that by taking it like Dr. Sinclair recommended, which was an hour before you drink, an hour later, the blood levels of are naltrexone are maximal. And that's when people get the, 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 the maximal protection of, uh, against the endorphins produced by the alcohol. The same way the naltrexone uh, given in this matter works better when people drink a less concentrated beverage or they drink hmm. after having a meal um, right. because there's right. less uh, stimulus. Con- conversely, if people uh, try the Sikra method and they uh, are putting down shots of vodka, and there's too much endorphin stimulation for the naltrexone to really block that kind of reinforcement, and it's harder to reduce the consumption as much. You know, the naltrexone is a fairly safe drug. Uh, we have to worry about uh, people with liver failure when you take naltrexone. Uh, you don't want to uh, make the liver uh, problems worse in somebody in that situation, so but otherwise it's fairly safe. It's a it's a good drug. It causes nausea. Sometimes people get headaches, um and they're you know can affect their mood too. People can be. I've heard of people getting suicidally thinking on it, so they had to stop it for that reason. But some people feel anxious. But you know most of the time people can tolerate it really well. What's really nifty is it seems to work best for people with alcoholism uh, who have the genetics for alcoholism so it kind of helps those people the best
0: yeah yeah yeah. that's really interesting what uh do you hope to see our field embrace or become in the next five to ten years
1: in terms of asking a question on where the where the field should be in, in the next five or ten years we have an amazing cadre of, of really caring people that, that want to help people in recovery And the knowledge needs to be disseminated about the critical nature of nutrition. We need to allow that brain to recover so that people can hear what's going on in in a meeting and they can hear a counselor talk about things. Oftentimes, people are struggling and they feel really guilty about their abilities to stop drinking and they feel like they're bad people because they can't stop drinking. What I've noticed has been fascinating is that sometimes people take the naltrexone, all of a sudden they don't crave alcohol and they stop. They, they realize the alcohol is a disease or, or a disorder, and it's not their fault. And they're not guilty. They're not bad people because they crave alcohol. They realize that it really is a biological problem. And that's sort of a light goes off. I remember one very eloquent uh, patient of mine just dis- described having gone through psychotherapy for years for his alcohol problems. And then once he started taking the naltrexone, the craving went away, and he could control the drinking all the issues in in the uh, counseling sessions changed Mm. because they were no longer around his inability to control drinking. They were around other issues, which I always thought was fascinating. And I think there's people in the uh, addiction treatment field will will see amazing uh, benefits of using medications and nutrition. They didn't really tell you about the practical things that I see about nutrition. I'll start people on nutritional uh, therapy oftentimes before they get any medications, pharmacology. I just start them on high dose fish oil and farm all the vitamins. Even calcium has been shown to reduce gravy. All these things, what happens is they just think clearly. They 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 lose their brain fog. They can concentrate. They say, doc, you know, I just my head's cleared. Mm. I can understand what's going on. It's really wonderful that, yeah. that just a simple simple thing like that can make a difference, but it really can. And that should be part of the future. When we need to see people as a holistic uh, and a holistic perspective, people have need to clear their mind. Sometimes that requires inpatient therapy to, to get that uh, space where their brain can heal. Sometimes it doesn't, but it always needs good nutrition quality foods. And then sometimes people just need, need medicines to overcome the alcohol deprivation effect that causes craving after, after uh, sometime without alcohol. It's not that they're guilty or bad people. It's just that that's the way that the brain is, is, is set up so that the craving of alcohol will increase with time. With the, the medication tools that they have, the brain can be rewired, as Dr. Sinclair used to like to say, so that people don't have to have a, a recurrence of their big drinking anymore. So that's that's what the fun thing is, you know, I have the private practice doing telemedicine, and it's so satisfying to be able to help people and who come to you know they find me on my website or they read about the alcoholism on my website and they and they just are so so grateful that their their head clears yeah. with the nutritional things and they, they can feel like they've um, got a new lease on life. They're not going to die from alcohol. And they're really just um, very grateful about that.
0: Yeah it's a it's a really scary thing to feel uh, incredibly out of control and and since you talked about seeing people who are more functional um, you know kind of in the earlier stages, one of the things that I remember feeling in the early stages, well I, I'm able to do all these other things but when it you know I'm able to manage and control all these this list of other things, But when it comes to this one thing, it's a completely different story. It's mind boggling. You can't figure out like, why is the formula I use on the rest of my life not working in this area? And it's just, you know, it's just so upsetting. And so it's amazing to, to hear about all the things that we have to offer. Well, thank you so much for coming on and sharing this with us. I'm going to put lots of resources in the show notes, uh, the names of the medications. Where can people find you if they want to come and talk to you after this episode?
1: My website is alcoholrecoverymedicine.com.
0: Well, thank you so much for being here. I really appreciate it.
1: Oh, Ashley, it's great. You have a great show. It's fun. I send people to your show all the time.
0: Oh, thank you. This podcast is sponsored by lionrock.life. Lionrock.life is a diverse and supportive recovery community offering weekly over 70 online peer support meetings, useful recovery information, and entertaining content. Whether you're newly sober, have many years in recovery, or you're recovering from something other than drugs and alcohol, we have space for you. Visit www.lionrock.life today and enter promo code Courage for one month of unlimited peer support meetings free. Find the joy in recovery at lionrock.life.